Romans chapter 16. I think you will note as we go into this paragraph, this closing appeal, we looked at it last week to begin. We'll look at it again today. You will notice how there's a direct link with what Keith read in uh, Revelation chapter 12, the vision uh, that is there. This is also Reformation Sunday. Um, Our culture, of course, celebrates Halloween and don't want to get into all the roots of All Hallows' Eve and all the things surrounding that um, and the church calendar. But, of course, this was the time, the day, when Martin Luther um, nailed to the church door at Wittenberg his 95 theses that really, (coughs) in many ways, launched what has become, become known as the Protestant Reformation. And so this is Reformation Sunday, and it was at that time that really there was a rekindling of the fires of the preaching of the gospel in Western culture and in Western Europe. And from that came again a rebirth of the preaching, the teaching of justification by grace through faith alone. Those things had never left the Bible. Those things had only left being truly preached and taught in the church. And so the singing, the songs that we sang today all surrounded that theme. Of course, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a hymn, a tremendous hymn uh, that was written by Martin Luther. And the words of that song and the teaching that are in in, in those words, to God be the glory. Out of the Reformation came what are known as the five solas. The word sola is Latin for alone. Justification by grace through faith alone. And so, to God alone be the glory. Ancient words we sang, sola scriptura. Our authority comes from the preaching, the teaching of the word of God. Not from church tradition. Um, The power of the cross, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so that's kind of our emphasis as we look at this today. And I want to set that in the context of what we are talking about today. Because although Rome regarded the reformers as schismatics, they were in reality the restorers of truth. Rome had allowed fatal error to creep into the church, and the reformers confronted it. They refused to recant their teachings, and then they were eventually excommunicated by the Roman authorities, by the Roman church. Then their faithfulness is a constant testimony to us on the importance of being vigilant to the Word of God. Which brings us to the paragraph that we are reading and studying today. Um, He says here in this paragraph, in this closing appeal, he says, I appeal to you, brothers. Watch out for those who cause divisions. Who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And avoid them. 
For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. They serve their own appetites. And through smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all. So I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord, we look forward to that day when you return. What a glorious day that will be when you usher in the kingdom and you crush Satan. We look to that. I pray that, Father, in the days in which we live, you would help us that we would be faithful. We would follow your word. Lord, we would avoid the divisions and obstacles of men, the false teachings that creep in. We would watch for ourselves. We would grow in grace. I pray that you bless us in your word today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would meet with us in the pages of it, that you would point us to Jesus and to Jesus alone. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this, I, I want us to set it in kind. He says here, Think, think of the, this precious promise that he mentions at the end of this paragraph in this closing appeal. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. He will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is a tremendous promise in the Word of God. And the words of the hymn that we sang this morning, uh, when Martin Luther was struggling And he's writing this song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it seems that everything is coming against him. He nevertheless realizes that much of this conflict is exactly what it says in the book of Ephesians. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. And so in that great hymn that we sang this morning, he speaks of that conflict for still our ancient foe, does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. But the hymn continues, one word will fell him. The name of Jesus. God will soon crush Satan under our feet. As we look at this, and we remind ourselves of what is going on in this paragraph, I want us to begin, first of all, by looking here, i got to get my pen on, at this closing appeal. In this closing appeal, the basic appeal that we looked at last week is, he tells us to watch out. Remember this? He says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out. Watch out. And we talked about that word itself and what it means. And it really means to draw a bead on it. And we talked about how it literally pictures uh, putting something in your sights. And so in the book of Philippians, he talks about how I press toward the mark 
for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I fix my gaze. I watch the mark. I am looking to the prize. And here he says we are to put a mark. We are to draw a bead on those who are causing divisions and obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have received. And so he's basically saying fix your eye upon it. Don't let it out of your sight. Pay careful attention. There's danger here. There's danger. You mothers know what this is like. You watch for your children. And if there's something that's a danger, you're watching extra careful. Being careful that they don't get into the way of that which is dangerous. And he's saying here, we are to watch out. There's a danger. We are to avoid, he says, those who are causing divisions and obstacles contrary to the truth, the doctrine of God. Now notice the characteristics of the false teaching. We talked about this last week. It is contrary to the doctrine. Notice that in the text. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and obstacles by whispering and causing division in your midst. No, that's not what he's saying there, although that's always wrong. It's always wrong to gossip. It's always wrong to foment discord among the brethren. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about divisions and obstacles that are contrary to the truth of God's word, that are contrary to the doctrine. We talked about the Greek word prefix anti, which is against, like antichrist, but that's not what he says here. This is the Greek prefixed para, which means alongside or parallel to. Contrary, but parallel. And what he is talking about, systems that are not complementary, but are contrary because they are actually alternate systems that parrot the truth but they deviate in essentials. They look very close. They maybe use the same terms. They maybe meet in very similar buildings, and yet what they believe is very different. They run alongside. They are parallel systems, but they are contrary. And he says, avoid that. And that is what he's getting at in this text. Remember, this is a closing appeal. The Apostle Paul has written a letter to these believers in which he has given them the most comprehensive explanation of Christian doctrine anywhere in the New Testament. This is the gospel. I am not ashamed of it, Paul says. And now he appeals to them when someone comes to you and they do not bring this doctrine, avoid it. Avoid it. That is the response that he tells them to have. What does the word avoid mean? First of all, this is not a passive response. It's an active choice. It is an active choice on your part to stay away from it to not go to those blogs, to not listen to those things, to not read those books. It is an active choice to avoid. And there are two reasons. Number one is self-preservation. 
And number two is to restore the one who is the offender. And we talked about that all last week, and we're not going to go back into that today. Let's think about these contrary doctrines. Number one, he says they cause division. Now, I would just say to you, this is exactly the opposite of what you most likely see in the world today. Because what happens is, those who are practicing those contrary doctrines, they're the ones who are all saying what? Well, let's all get together. We're all one. We're all one. And then us Bible believers are the what? Well, we're the crazy divisive ones. But God actually says it's actually the other way. Those who are teaching the false doctrines are the ones who create the division. They create division. And so false doctrine causes division. Number two, it causes obstacles and it causes falls. The Greek word is scandalon. It's the same word we saw in Romans 14 when he says, I won't eat meat, I won't do anything that causes my brother to stumble, to fall. And so what he's saying is, these divisions that are the result of false teaching have an effect. They have an effect on people's lives. They have an effect on people's marriages. They have an effect on churches. They have an effect on eternities. They cause people to fall. This is what the false teaching does. This is the contrary doctrine. There are two textual reasons to avoid these teachings. And this is where we begin to go forward in the text. The two textual reasons to avoid these false doctrines are, number one, because of the identity of the false teachers, and then secondly, because of the reputation of the church at Rome. Notice with me in your Bible what he says. Read it again. I appeal to you. Brethren, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles that is contrary to the doctrine that you have learned. And what's the appeal? Avoid them. Notice the word for. These That word for is going to be used twice here to give us these reasons that he tells us to avoid these teachings. Number one, for such persons are not serving our Lord Christ. They may say they are. They may say they are. But Paul says when they bring other doctrines than what I have preached, in Galatians 1, he said, let them be accursed. Even if I, Paul said, or an angel from heaven come to you and preach any other gospel to you than what you received, let him be accursed. So what is he saying? For, for such persons are not serving Christ. 
They are serving what? Their own appetites. The Greek word is belly. Their own sensual pleasures. Their own sensual desires. They are serving themselves. And it is by smooth talk and flattery that they are deceiving the hearts of the naive. And then notice the word for. That's the second reason here we are to avoid them. For your obedience is known to everyone. And I rejoice over you. So I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. So we see here there are two textual reasons that we should or to avoid these false teachings. Number one is because these false teachers are not serving Christ. They are serving themselves and their own appetites, their own bellies. And then secondly, because of the reputation of the church at Rome. Now let's reflect on these phrases. Notice what he says, who they serve. They are not serving Christ. They may say they are, but they're not. The fact that their doctrine deviates from the truth tells us they are only serving themselves. They are serving their own fleshly appetites. That may be an appetite for many things. It may be for prestige and power. It may be an appetite for money and fame. Whatever the case may be. But they are serving self, not Christ. Secondly, notice the means of their method. They use smooth flattery. Smooth. Smooth talkers. This reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul tells Timothy at the close of his ministry and life, he tells Timothy, Timothy, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when men will not love sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, they will heap up teachers who have itching ears and they will flatter them and turn their hearts from truth. So the means of their method is smooth flattery. The book of Proverbs talks often about the flatterer. The person that comes to you and just tells you how good you are and everything that just so great, but in their heart, they devise evil against you. Beware of that. means of their method is smooth flattery. Sometimes the message that comes from these doctrines sounds so good, sounds so plausible. It's all about love. It's all about equality. And yet in the end, it stings as an adder. Their ultimate goal, they deceive the hearts. They deceive the hearts. One of the reasons we avoid false teaching is because it is so deceptive. The first time you start reading it, you look at it and you say, well, that's a bunch of baloney. But the more you interact with it and the more you listen to it, the more you think about it, it becomes very deceptive because it appeals to you. It appeals to me. 
It appeals to our basic flesh and our basic appetites. That's why these men got into it the first way, is because it appeals, it, 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 it's smooth, it's flattering. The ultimate goal is it deceives hearts. And I want you to notice how this one ties in. Their method reveals their master. And that's why he talks about Satan at the end of this paragraph. Because these false teachers are only a front for who? The kingdom of darkness. Who is the great deceiver? Satan. This is the very method he used in the garden. When the serpent talked to Eve, he had smooth, flattering words. Has God really said? Has God really said you shall not eat of that? And it sounded so good, and the serpent seemed so nice. And in John 8, 44, Jesus turned to religious leaders of his day, and he said to them, you are of your father, the devil. You are of your father, the devil. And so their method reveals their master. They do not serve Christ. They serve themselves. And ultimately, they are servants of darkness. Avoid it. Satan's goal. Think with me of Satan's goal here. Satan is desiring to bring down these who have a reputation for obedience. I want you to notice this in the text again. He says, By smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive, for your obedience is known to all, and I rejoice over you. Paul rejoices over them. The Holy Spirit rejoices over them. God is happy and glorified by what these people are doing because they are obedient to the gospel, but Satan is looking at them. Do you think he's happy? No. He is wanting to destroy them. He is doing everything in his power to tear them down. And I want us to reflect on this truth that Satan desires to bring down those who have a reputation for obedience. Fruitfulness for Christ puts a target on your back. It's not an occasion to sit back on your laurels and to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Pride goes before destruction. Think with me of Peter. Shortly before Jesus goes to the cross... In his pride, Peter says, I will never deny you. Though everybody else does, I will never deny you. The Lord says to Peter, I want you to know, three times before the cock will crow, you will deny three times you know me. And then he says this, Satan has desired you that he might sift you like wheat. And you, 
when you are converted again, doesn't mean reborn again, he just means when you come back, strengthen your brethren. Satan has desired you. Emmanuel Bible Church. Your obedience is known to many. You're an individual believer in this church. You're a family in this church. People know who you are. They, people know what you claim. People have you interact with them in our community, and maybe you shared the gospel with your neighbor. And you have a reputation for obedience. Satan has desired you. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your home. He wants to take you down. And so Paul is telling the church here, avoid the false teaching and the contrary doctrine because what Satan is wanting to do is he is wanting to destroy you because you have a reputation for obedience. Paul's sincere desire, notice this in the text, is this. He wants them to be wise to what? Do you want to raise your kids to know about all the trash in Hollywood? Do you want to raise your kids to know about all the trash on the internet? Do you want to raise your kids to be hip about everything in the culture? What does he say? Be wise to what is it in the text? To what is what? Good. Be what? Innocent. Naive. To what is evil? Be naive to what is evil. This is Paul's sincere desire for the Christians. They are living in a pagan society just like we are. And Paul says, I want you to be wise to what is good. I want you to be innocent about what is evil. Jesus says it a little bit different way. He says, I want you to be a wise as a serpent. I want you to be innocent as a dove. Wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. What does that mean? How can you be wise like a snake? Well, a snake camouflages itself not to draw attention to itself. It conceals itself. And Paul is, it, Jesus talks about Matthew 10, how they're going to drag you out of the synagogues and they're going, to, they're going to persecute you. They're going to try to kill you for my name. And Jesus says, be wise as a serpent. Conceal yourself. Camouflage yourself. But I also want you to be innocent as a dove. How does a dove respond to danger? It flees. It flees it. It avoids it. Exactly what we see in this text. It doesn't want to be tarnished. Think with me of a dove. I love seeing doves, don't you? Doves are such a beautiful, harmless bird. I love to see them and how beautiful they are. And they seem to be so untarnished. Flees rather than being tarnished. And so he says, be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. Be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. There's a play on words here. And I want you to notice in the text, he said there are some who are naive and they are led away and deceived. And then they're 
is a truth that we are to be naive to evil. And so there's a play on words here. And what God is telling us here, listen, Christian, this is what God is saying. He says, I want you to be naive about the essence of evil. But I do not want you to be naive as to the schemes of those who promote it. Don't be naive to that. Don't think that just everybody loves Jesus because they say they do. Don't think that everybody has your best interests at heart just because they say they do. Don't be naive to those who scheme and plan and promote evil, but please, please keep yourself naive to the essence of evil because if you're not, it will draw you in and it will allure you and it will steal your heart. Because evil is that deceptive. So be naive about some things and not naive. Remember in the book of Proverbs, it talks about the naive young man. And the naive young man is just walking down the road. And he comes to her corner. And with flattery, she whispers in his ear. And she takes him to her bed. And for it, he dies. Because he was naive. Be naive to evil, but not about those who promote it. Avoid it. Avoid it like the plague. There is a promise to cherish. The promise to cherish, this promise is a promise from God about our Lord's return and one of the things that He will accomplish when He comes. When the Lord returns, it is not going to be like His first advent. His first advent was secret. It was in Bethlehem. It was quiet and it was simple. His second advent will take the world by storm and no one will miss it. When he comes, he will rule and reign and he will crush Satan. This is reminiscent of a verse in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, when the woman falls in sin and Adam willingly partakes with her, God confronts them in the, in the garden. This is called the Proto-Evangelium because it is the first mention of the Gospel in the Bible. And it happens at the curse. And God says to the snake, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, the seed of the woman, will strike you upon the head, and you, the snake, will strike him upon his heel. 
I want you to notice this prophecy. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will strike you upon the head, and you will strike him on the heel. Notice some things in this text. The first thing, and this is the beauty of it, the woman is not left in Satan's camp. People ask me, were Adam and Eve saved? This verse tells me they were. He says of the woman, I will put hostility between her and you. In other words, God is saying there, I, by my sovereign grace, am snatching her from your hand, and she is now at hostility to you. She's in my camp. The woman is not left in Satan's camp, but God sovereignly saves her and makes her and her offspring Satan's foe. Notice this. The entire universe is now divided into two opposing camps. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It says Satan will strike a wound at the seed. But Satan will not be able to strike the head of the seed. He will only strike what? The heel. However, Christ will strike a death blow to the head of the snake and will crush it. So when we read in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, he is referring to this prophecy in Genesis 3.15. The God of peace. Notice with me, first of all, the one who wins the victory. Who's going to win the victory? The God of peace. He is a God of peace. And we are reconciled to him in the blood of his cross But because he is the God of peace, he will first wage war to bring the peace. So the God of peace, the one who wins the victory is God. Secondly, notice the ones whom he uses to win the victory. Who gets to participate? Your feet. What a joy that will be. We get to dance on the head of Satan. We will crush him under our feet. In the name of God. God wins the victory. We get to participate. Notice this part of the promise. What happens in the victory? Satan will be crushed. Notice the word crushed. That word is used in the book of Revelation when it talks about when the Lord returns. And they will the nations will be trampled under his feet as when grapes were pressed by women underfoot, as when pottery was discarded and thrown in the streets and was walked on and is utterly crushed. He is talking about the utter crushing 
of Satan's kingdom. The other thing that he's picturing here is what would happen in the ancient world. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. When Jerusalem was destroyed, they did not come in with bulldozers and haul it all away. What did they do with everything? They crushed it down to nothing, and they built the next city on top of it. And what he is saying here is this. Satan's kingdom will be so utterly crushed that the kingdom of God will be built on top of it and above it. It will be crushed. It will be obliterated. And when will it happen? When will it happen? Soon. Soon. Now, why did he say that? Soon. Because that was 2,000 years ago. That seems like a long time. Why was it soon? The word soon, and I'm like out of time, but the word soon is used in the scripture to describe something very precisely. That word is used all through the book of Revelation. And it speaks of something that is imminent, but unknown. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know it will. And when it will, or when it does, it will happen very quickly. I don't know when it's coming, but I know it will. And when it does, it's all going to happen now. A thief in the night. Behold, Jesus said, I come quickly. He's not saying there, I come tomorrow. He's saying, I'm coming soon. It's imminent. You better know I'm going to come. And when I come, you won't get to decide whose side you're on because it's going to happen that quick. When I come, time will end. Your decision is sealed. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Whose camp are you in? When he comes, you won't have time to change camps. You better do it now. Today is the day of salvation. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for this appeal to us about those that we should avoid. And we thank you for this promise that you have given to us concerning your return. And I pray, dear Lord, that if there's someone here today that has never put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone, that today, today would be the day of salvation for them. And so we pray in Jesus' name.